0: This episode of Empire is brought to you by Quicknode. Quicknode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their Elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about Quicknode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Carbon. Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity super easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit and range orders, all from a beautiful UI. Check out Carbon today for unprecedented control over your liquidity. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We are joined again by Robert Leshner, who has been on the show before, but for a different thing that he was working on now uh robert you recently announced super state so super excited to chat with you about this uh welcome back to empire
1: thanks for having me back super excited about talking about super state
0: yeah yeah it's a, it's a nice name it's like you know super state it's exciting you know
1: yeah like in like you know 50 years we'll have like the super state arena you know for some sports team oh uh,
0: yeah you've been yeah. thinking about that i know yeah. you have <laughs> yeah. 50 year plan. what uh what what sports team would you uh would you sponsor
1: um, you know, probably in 50 years, the most popular sport will be pickleball or an e-sport. So, you know, something like that.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. You're yeah. probably right. Are you sad that you have to give up? Uh, are you not playing as much chess now? And I, I saw
1: you were getting pretty good out there. You know, there was a while where I was spending like a lot of time on chess. Um, My ratings are going stale and a little bit down because I have not been taking as much time. But, you know, there was a one year period where I was definitely learning how to play chess.
0: Nice. <laughs> I was complaining to my wife the other day. I was like, yeah, I'm spending way too much time on my phone. She's like, all right, well, let's look into your, let's look at your phone. Like you can see where you're spending time on the apps. It was like one hour texting or like one hour on email or whatever. It was like six hours on chess.com. Uh, she's like, well, this is where it's going. <laughs> well,
1: personal question. What's your rating on chess.com?
0: Uh, not, not good enough to be spending six hours. I, um, I'm a 12, 1200. So do
1: you play bullet, blitz or rapid?
0: so th- this is one of my problems i was just playing a bunch of uh like bullet and blitz games and so i actually just got a chess coach and he's like you got to go to the you know 10 15 20 20 minute games to really to really start to like learn how to play
1: right that's how you learn how to play yeah. well, that's great you'll uh i i look forward to watching your rating you know march up over time we'll see
0: we'll see um awesome man. well let's let's chat super state so my like tldr high level understanding is superstate is going to buy short term government debt tokenize it on blockchains um but would love to hear your i think like two things the the vision for the company but also like the why behind why this is the most exciting and biggest and best opportunity that you can go pursue right now
1: absolutely so i'll start with what we're doing and then i'll explain why i think it's so exciting so you know to clarify a little bit um what we are is we are an investment management business um that we've created and we're in the business of advising mutual funds. Um, a few days ago last week, there was a registration filed with the SCC, it's a preliminary registration statement for a fund called the Superstate Short-Term Government um, Bond Fund. And this fund is, in a lot of ways, very similar to most mutual funds out there in that it has a very simple investment mandate and um, it will purchase a number of securities. And it's a, you know, it's planning to be a um, registered um, and um, investable mutual fund. What's different about it from other mutual funds is that, um, as filed in the preliminary prospectus, there will be a component where shareholders of the fund can request to have a record of their ownership uh, sent to a blockchain address that they control, either self custody or at a qualified custodian. Um, that they might be working with, and the advantage of this is that um, it gives an extra layer of transparency to shareholders in a format that they're already used to. So, if you're a crypto crypto venture fund or a crypto hedge fund, um, you might not want to, you know, create you know parallel infrastructure between crypto investments and tradfi investments, and you know you might want to just keep everything at the same crypto custodian. And so, as an investor, this would give you a, a a tool to be an investor in a you know very specific mutual fund, but also see it alongside your other investments at a custodian or be able to track in a, a single portfolio management approach and just you know be able to like have a unified uh, technical architecture for how you sort of store, manage, and monitor your investments. And so, you know, this is um, You know, a distinct advantage. It's not a massive advantage, but we think that it's really, you know, the first step on Mm. the, you know, tokenization or digitization, you know, whatever you want to call it for what many people call real world assets. Um, I just call them, you know, traditional assets in a lot of ways, but bringing a traditional asset or traditional investment on chain in some capacity. And this is like chapter one of like as a whole society and a whole industry You know this shift of bringing assets on chain, and the advantages long term of having assets on chain are numerous. You know, um, you know, there's a composability with other on chain systems. There's you know a massive increase in transparency, in automation, in the speed, and you know permanence of settlement. Like all of the reasons that people love DeFi, you know, are eventually going to exist for traditional assets. You know, traditional Mm. assets like mutual funds, stocks, bonds. Currencies, you know, that is the end state. And, you know, what we're doing is we're doing our piece, you know, a very specific, narrow piece um, to usher in this future. And, you know, when I look at like, you know, why are we doing this? You know, when I got into crypto in 2017, you know, at the time I was like, oh, real world assets and tokenization of things is just around the corner, (laughs) you know. I, I said, you know, to everyone who would listen to me, you know, like sec- all of, sec-
0: security you know, token summer of 2018. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Of 2018, know, I was like, oh man, like we're just like one step away from like all of the bonds and all of the equities and all of the, <laughs> the currencies and commodities and real estate being tokens on a blockchain one day. And six years later, you know, we've seen very little demonstrable traction and proof of assets coming from traditional markets. Onto the blockchain. And, you know, I view this as one of the single largest opportunities for, you know, the blockchain ecosystem as a whole, for investors, for developers, for builders, Mm. is to like just assist in the process of bringing assets on chain in whatever way is, you know, feasible and possible. And that's the sort of why, you know, I just view this as. A massive migration that I thought would have happened by now. You know, I thought, you know, if you asked me in 2017, like, you know, how long is this going to take? I would have said like five years. Everything's going to be on chain. You know, a protocol like Compound or a Uniswap or MakerDAO or whatever is going to be able to interact with like commercial real estate. You know, <laughs> but like none of this has occurred yet. And so, you know, that's the why. I just see this this massive migration that really hasn't started. That's been lagging. That like for the builders and developers in you know, the crypto ecosystem, like I thought other people would have made more progress by now and more well, traction by now.
0: Well, why do you think that ha- hasn't happened? Because actually I, there, there, there are a lot of folks who have tried to take this on, right? Do you remember Harbor? It was like Josh and Harbor. And I think Bitco might've acquired them back in the day. There's obviously folks like Securitize. Like there have been people who have been working on this and kind of attacking it from different angles. Like a lot of folks trying to tokenize real estate. That obviously hasn't, hasn't worked out so well. Like why do you think the kind of securitization platforms of the last five years haven't worked out that well?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it's been relatively early in the sort of growth of demand. Um, you know, it's a chicken and an egg problem, but there has to be demand from end users to have things brought on chain or a giant economic invisible hand that's like, you know, pushing them on chain or pulling them on chain. Like There has to be some like massive driving force that like wants it mm-hmm. really badly. And, you know, that's, I think, the most important piece. And I think like the invisible hand of like wanting, you know, securitization and tokenization over the past few years has not been that strong in comparison to assets that are issued native to crypto. So assets that only exist mm-hmm. on a blockchain. So, you know, I, I look at the world very simply as like a black and white thing of like, is the asset originally created on a blockchain? And is that the only place where it lives? Or does the asset exist in the traditional financial market? And it needs to be brought onto a blockchain. And all of the most popular crypto assets for traders in crypto, for hedge funds, for venture funds, for whatever are crypto native assets. It's the assets associated with a layer one blockchain, the assets issued on top of a layer one blockchain, you know, and all of these things. And it's just so much easier. And closer for these crypto native assets. And so, you know, there's been enough of a market for crypto native assets. That's been where all the excitement is that you haven't really seen, you know, a huge amount of demand for, like, okay, we need to get, you know, stocks onto the blockchain or we need to get real estate onto the blockchain. There's a huge amount of interest, you know, in crypto native assets. Like you look at anyone, you ask them what they're excited about. You know, they're excited about crypto because it's different than you know, real estate or equities, which they already have access to. They like the thing they don't yet have access to that's mm-hmm. new. But I think over time, that pull or that gravity is going to increase, especially as the amount of things you can do on chain increase. And so when I look at this, I think the invisible hand is biggest right now and probably for the next few years with, you know, short-term interest rates. I think like the biggest yeah. pull is going to be people Who are on-chain who are native to blockchain saying, well, we really want the yield from TradFi. I mean, like T-bills are 5% plus. Like, who doesn't want that? It's one of the greatest assets of all time. It's, you know, an incredibly safe short-term investment. And so, you know, everybody wants that. And it doesn't really, really exist on-chain right now. There's a lot of You know teams out there that are developing solutions. Um, you know we're not alone. We're not going to stay alone. There's going to be, you know, a hundred like phenomenal teams that are all trying to, you know, facilitate what I think the invisible hand wants, which is like how do you get this great investment from the traditional market and bring it on chain where I can like, you know, use it in interesting ways. But like that's where I see the invisible hand being strongest. Um, just around rates and mostly because you know the interest rate differential between you know trad. And DeFi right now favors TradFi coming on chain. Rates, you know, that are scalable into the trillions right now are like 5% zone. Rates in DeFi across the board are not. They're like two, three, maybe at best four percent. And so, you know, it's the time for there to be a giant magnet pulling assets from off-chain on-chain. The opposite existed you know, three years ago, where like rates in DeFi were like 8%. Yeah, it's the inverse
0: of DeFi summer. Yeah, exactly. It's the inverse of DeFi exactly. summer and try to was zero. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like there's this huge market like space right now to smooth out the kind of the proverbial like interest rate gap between web two and web three or traditional capital markets and, and DeFi. Um, Absolutely. B- before we get there, cause that's actually really interesting. Um Before we get there, I, so I interned at, um, oh my God, what was the name of this mutual uh, capital group, American funds, um, which I guess is like a you know big comp- one of the biggest mutual funds out there, competitor to the you know Vanguards and and Fidelities of the world. Are you? There are kind of two angles I feel like you could have taken here. One is basically trying to recreate Vanguard's business or maybe Franklin Templeton's business and do it more on chain. Another uh, angle that you could have gone here is to build a platform to help the Vanguards and Fidelities and Franklin Templetons of the world come on chain. Which. Which direction did you did you go and, and why?
1: Yeah, it's, that's actually a really interesting question. So there's definitely technology companies um, that are trying to enable investment managers to come on chain. We're in bucket one or the first approach that you described, which is we're creating an investment management business that will be technologically savvy. You know, you know, I have a lot of experience in you know on chain markets. But then it's an investment management business first, so it actually looks a lot more like a Vanguard that's going to make more high tech financial products, mm. um, not a technology company trying to level up, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock. And so, mm. you know, I view Superstate, the business that you know we recently launched, as something that eventually, over time, will slowly compete with Vanguard, BlackRock, and investment management businesses with, you know, like a tech focus um to create, you know, just like huge amounts of funds that people prefer because they're, you know, slightly more functional and higher tech and, you know, more transparent and better and, you know, all of these advantages.
0: Huh. It's interesting. I never really thought about like that business as being a business as being like a business to go into. But I guess if you think about it, um a lot of these are kind of like legacy family run businesses. Like I think Capital Group is still private, started a long time ago still private run like family owned business. I think va- uh, that you know, is is fidelity the, is the Johnson yeah. family, right? It's yeah. been running it for a long time. I, I Franklin Templeton. I'm pretty sure family run business. Um, and i never really thought about going after these businesses, but that's mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Yeah. There's mm-hmm. not many people, you know, trying to think it's about the less
0: that. sexy thing, right? Cause you could have raised a bunch of money for a tech platform at a really high multiple, even in this market, I'm sure. So,
1: yeah, I, I think boring is sometimes good. Um, boring, you know, we're great. basically, yeah, we're, we're basically trying to like fill the shoes. Of- As
0: someone who did not start a DeFi protocol uh, <laughs> and had some FOMO in the uh, DeFi summer. I boring boring ended up being pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about like the types of assets that you that you envision tokenizing, because I think like when people talk. By the way, I like that you called them traditional assets, not real world assets, because I think real world kind of de- implies that. I mean, things digitally is not the real world, but obviously that's not true. So I, li- I like this word, traditional assets. Tell me what you are starting with and then maybe like how you expand to to other traditional assets and like which ones you kind of take on first.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, for me, it's it's relatively, you know, obvious, which is yeah. I think the biggest pull and the biggest demand is going to be around, you know, a safe short-term interest rate. Um, yeah. You know, there's trillions of dollars, <laughs> that are looking for short term yield that aren't trying to chase risk or, you know, duration. A short term government bond fund is like, you know, the lowest taking fruit. It's the juiciest apple that's closest on the tree and it's like the most obvious candidate. Um mostly because I think the market for it is massive. I think there's, you know, potentially trillions of dollars of, you know, incremental interest in short term government debt. And so that one's obvious. Down the road, you know, we're going to explore a different Additional asset classes, but not until we've proven out what works, what doesn't work, and iterated with a single asset. Uh, because I think it's like the mm-hmm. most important asset; it's the most obvious, and it's too early to be like, "All right, well, if a short-term government bond fund works, what about an equity index fund, or mm-hmm. you know, a commodities fund, or a real estate fund, or a currency fund?" Like, you can create a fund for any asset, any strategy. I mean, there's, you know trillion different funds you could create but we're just gonna start with the most obvious before spending the time and focus and bandwidth on you know what else is potential
0: yeah yeah i guess there's um i remember actually pomp always saying his like the you know a pompism back in like 2018 or 2019 was like tokenize the world and he was like i remember him always saying like you know stocks bonds currencies commodities it'll all be tokenized what a in terms of like difficulty, I'm maybe on more of like a micro scale, I'm, I'm actually very curious, like how this kind of works, like what you have to build to maybe tokenize something like equities or commodities. Like, how, how does that actually work?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, it's actually not very different from yeah. you know having a bond fund where the shares can exist in a digital record on chain. If you can have a fund mm-hmm. and the shares exist, you know, on chain as a digital record, it doesn't really matter what's in the fund. Um, it could be bonds and cash. It could be stocks. You know, theoretically, it could be real estate. You know, it could be anything. Um, it's really not incrementally different. I think the most important thing, and I'll keep going back to this phrase, is just like what does the invisible hand want? Like it's the interest know? rates. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's like what's fundamentally different. You know, I don't know how many people really care about having stocks on chain right now. Because they can get stocks off chain yeah. and they may as well. Hmm. What
0: does this what's kind of like the second order impact of having um traditional yield, like you know, five, six percent yield or whatever in DeFi? What what does that do for DeFi and what does that do for crypto?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting thought experiment. I mean, if you have like a huge amount of yield opportunity, you know, coming from traditional assets but on-chain and the switching costs are low. You know, I think eventually what that does is just, you know, crowds out, you know, defi up to that interest rate. Like if it's incredibly easy to get T-bills on-chain and they're 5%, you know, I don't think people are going to, you know, be comfortable with an on-chain return less than that. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, the equivalent like risk-free rate in defi will go up and the You know, available interest rates in DeFi will go up beyond that. It's just that right now, there's so much friction between, you know, off chain markets and on chain markets. Like there's back and forth costs, there's, you know, switching costs, there's like opportunity costs, you know. If you actually have at scale and without too much friction, you know, the risk free rate on chain, everything else is going to have to like match it in its equilibrium. Like no one's going to, you know, take incremental risk there when they're like, "Oh well, I can instantly get five percent," right. and I know it's just it's just T bills. Like, I that's awesome. Like, how could any protocol or any system offer less than that? The only reason they can right now is because there isn't some scalable on chain hmm. access to a low risk liquid investment.
0: Okay, so then does the, uh, I've been try- I've been thinking about like the. I've been reading about LIBOR recently, trying to understand LIBOR and just think about like what the risk free rate in DeFi will look like in a couple of years. On one hand, you could think of it as like almost the yield that staking spits off could be the risk free rate. But on, on the, on like on the other side, you could think of it as like the, you know, the tre- like 10 year treasuries, right? Are about as risk free as you can get. So like, how do you think about the yield that you get from something like 10 year treasury being tokenized versus the yield that you get from staking.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay. So, you know, for a given currency, there's going to be some essentially risk free rate. Okay. The word currency and commodity are kind of squishy, but like, you know, for Ether, there's a risk free rate, but Ether is different than dollars. Dollars Hmm. have their own equivalent risk free rate. For Ether, it's staking, right? And that might be, 5%. 5%. But the exchange rate between Ether and dollars might be incredibly volatile. Um, you know, there might be a risky rate for Euros, which matches, you know, like the ECB rates on chain. But Ether is its own sort of like currency or like base level asset. Mm. You know, 5% in Ether is not comparable to 5% on dollars because dollars are flat. They don't really do anything, they're sort of like a straight line. Whereas ether goes up and down in dollar terms three percent a day, um, but if you're like completely like I am an ether maximalist and I only think in terms of ether, you know, ether's risk rate is all that matters to you, and a rate on dollars is the risky one because that one's going up and down in ether terms all day, and so it's subjective in the same way that like the interest rates on any currency are subjective to the people you know I- exposed to the local currency versus it being a foreign currency. And, you know, there's preferences, but, you know, there's not one risk-free rate. There's a risk-free rate per currency. And for it, uh, it's going to come from staking yield. And for dollars, it's going to come from T-bills. As all of these, you know, things reach, you know, scale and parity.
0: Huh. That's really interesting. Did your... I imagine some of your... Like, how how do your learnings from Compound apply to what you're building right now? Because, the like, the rate on Compound... Varies widely, right? Which leads to like interest rate volatility, and which comes from like just kind of full free market, full decentralized free market, and I'm just I'm which which has some which has some problems, right? It it limits some things that can happen. Um, and you know we don't have a fully baked out like interest rate swaps market in DeFi yet, and people are working on that. But how, do, how does like your learnings from Compound specifically applied to interest rates apply to this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So. You know, the first lesson that, you know, I learned probably around like 2018, 2019, after like the first like version or two of Compound was released, was that, you know, for the most part, almost all of the demand to borrow was in stable coins. When I originally envisioned Compound and like wrote the first white paper in like 2017, I was like, oh, people are going to want to borrow every, Crypto native asset that exists. Like people want to borrow Ether and people want to borrow, <laughs> you know, Chainlink tokens. And the reality is that people really just want to borrow stable coins or, you know, a stable asset because, you know, they prefer that their debt isn't uncertain, right? They don't like it going up and down wildly. They want to borrow something where they know exactly how much they're going to owe. You know, borrowing in stable coins has been like the overwhelming preference um, for a lot of users that I've been able to observe. And, you know, that was the first like major lesson. And that actually actually informed, you know, a lot of the decisions that went into the design of like compound version three, which was like, well, what if we just like remove half of the protocol and you can only borrow a stable coin? And, mm-hmm. you know, and like, what happens if you just like rip out half the code? Um, and it led to like a real like, you know, reinvention of just like thinking about, you know, what do people want? Whether it's like a, Crypto hedge fund or a high net worth, you know, speculator. Like, what do they actually want? And like, can you like rip out all the things that they don't want? Um, and from an interest rate perspective, you know, one of the things that surprised me is that you know, fixed rate instruments haven't taken off in yeah. DeFi yet. Um, you know, I was expecting, you know, from the earliest days that fixed rate markets would have taken off. I've you know, as an investor at Robot Ventures invested in like 10 different protocols that do fixed rates, um, you know, we still haven't really seen any markets or any products that do fixed rates, like really scale in crypto. Yeah. Um, there've been a lot of incredible experiments. I'm really excited about a lot of teams working on this. But like, you know, to your point, like the rates that actually are there, you know, like Compound, Ave, you know. Curve whatever these are rates to change you know block by block these are not terms rates really for any structure right. it doesn't allow users to like you know take a lot of like rate predictability and so you know this has been a surprise to me and like that's a lesson is that this is a surprise that it hasn't developed and have have hasn't grown at all and so you know I think it like lends more credence to the idea that like you know things will just exist in their most scalable equilibrium format and there hasn't yet been a large amount of demand for a fixed rate on the borrowing side Hmm. or interest earning side
0: Hmm. i think it kind of just clicked to me that the opportunity here is not with actually individuals but it's with it's with companies right because um you know like people are flexible when they get their mortgage right like some people want fixed rates some people want variable whatever different pricing etc but you know if you were a company. Taking out a loan, like if you got a variable loan, that that could crush your business. Um, and so, like they're, you know, com- companies don't basically borrow on chain right now because of the. I think one of the many reasons is because of the unpredictability of the interest rates, which can completely crush a business. Um, but actually, like thinking about it with treasuries, like Blockworks right now is looking into kind of like, you know, the, you're, you get five percent if you just put it in uh, tenure right now. So, like, what do we kind of do with some of the money in the bank account? And um, it feels like the huge opportunity right now, which is like the the trillion dollar opportunity is actually with with treasuries. And I'm curious to hear just how you think about like treasuries being the opportunity. Yay or nay? I,
1: I think yay. I mean, clearly okay. I'm making the bet on yay, you know, yeah. <laughs> what I'm spending my time on, right? Um, and I, I think to go back to our earlier moment in the conversation. But I guess like, is that
0: the end customer? Like is the end customer here? When you think about your customer for the business, is it is it a company tokenizing or uh, allocating their 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 some of their treasuries to get this
1: yield in 50 years potentially in 20 years <laughs> in 10 years? Right. I, yeah. I think most companies, if they're looking for you know a stable investment and like they're not already crypto native themselves, like they're they can go out and buy you know a 10 year or five year treasury bill or you note know, today, right? They just go out and buy treasuries. Like they don't need any product that exists in crypto. Um, you know, the question is, do they want to do that, you know, on-chain or not? And the answer is on-chain increasingly over time, the answer is gonna be yes, because more and more businesses and more and more institutions and more and more users and investors, et cetera, will be, you know, capable of interacting with blockchains and accessing blockchain based markets. And services, and so you know, as people come on chain, they're going to want that five percent, you know, note on chain. Mm Yeah, they're not going to want it through, you know, a traditional, you know, Web two or you know, Web one stack. They're going to want it a Web three stack. Um, But you know, today they if that it's just about the investment return and like the liquidity profile and all of this. They don't have to buy an asset on-chain. They can buy an asset. There's a million ways that you can go out and get those treasuries right now.
0: All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but... It's true, bear markets are building. And everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using Quicknode, you are building on hard mode. So Quicknode is is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, Quicknode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24 seven customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no GigaBrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics, All leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business. That's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code Empire. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's face it, concentrated liquidity is hard and that's why I'm super excited to partner with Carbon for Empire. Carbon is a new dex on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit orders and range orders. Wanna buy a token when it dips and sell it when it spikes? With Carbon, you can now set a strategy that buys in on one price range and sells in a higher range on repeat using a single source of automated rotating liquidity. Strategies can be created for any standard ERC20 token. I recently checked out the Carbon Beta that just dropped, pretty blown away by the liquidity strategies that Carbon enables on-chain. It has these rich trading features that you'd expect from a centralized exchange, except Carbon is fully on-chain, decentralized, and non-custodial. Just connect your wallet, it's carbondefi.xyz, that's carbondefi.xyz, choose a trading pair, set your buy and sell ranges and amounts, hit create, and you're done. Carbon automatically moves your liquidity into your selected ranges as the market moves. Last but not least, I'm excited to announce that Carbon is running a ROI trading competition until July 11th. Here's how to play, super easy, two steps. One, click the Carbon link in the show notes. Two, create a new Carbon trading strategy. And voila, you are now eligible to win USDC rewards based on the performance of your strategies. LPs, it is time to take back control of your liquidity with Carbon. Check out the link and get started today. Now, let's get back to Empire. Pivoting a little bit. I'm, I'm actually curious on the fundraise. I noticed that you guys only raised from, I think it was six or f- five or six folks. I think it was Parify, 1KX, Cumberland, CoinFund, and Distributed, I'm pretty sure it was. Yep, those why five. Why the, um, basically like what, what? I mean, you, you were also running your own fund at, at Robot. Like, why not? There's a different strategy here, which is you go get... Every crypto fund, I'm sure they all would have allocated. You go raise, how, how much did you raise? Four?
1: Four million, yeah.
0: You, you could have raised probably, you could have 10x that. I bet you could have raised I'm 40 million. Sure, I
1: probably could have.
0: I, I, right, you could have raised 40 million. You could have got like 50 of the best crypto funds. You could've, probably could have gotten some traditional funds on board. Why didn't you do that?
1: Well, I think, you know, it, it's a really interesting question. I mean, we really wanted to optimize for getting, you know, firms that we already knew and who we think would be, you know, ideal yeah users and you know customers and you know participants over time I think at some point we will go out and talk to all of the rest of the crypto funds and do something larger you know but early on we just wanted to optimize for making sure that we had you know exactly as much capital that was needed to get this off the ground and you know we've really just optimized for something simple and straightforward um, where we didn't have to have a lot of conversations and so you know it's, it's likely that maybe we will go out and you know a year or whenever and you know try to build a really close relationship with a lot larger of an audience um but it's just something we didn't do at this sort of pre seat
0: nice cool um if franklin templeton or vanguard or fidelity wanted to put in a, a big chunk would you would you let them or is that a competitor now on your cap table
1: yeah that's an interesting question i mean you know I haven't thought about it. Um, you know, over time, you know, I think like the lines of like what's competitive and what's cooperative like evolve considerably. Like one of the things I've seen, you know, not just from crypto but many different industries, is that things that look like competitors are eventually collaborators and like, cooperative, mm-hmm. and things that look cooperative are eventually you know competitive. And so, you know, I actually think it's generally okay to take strategic investments as long as there's no. You know, separate terms. One of the things I've seen actually harm a lot of companies are when strategic investments come with like incredibly restrictive, like covenants or side letters. And I'm saying this as an investor and as a founder with lots of friends who are founders. You know, if it's just capital, then it's actually great to have, whether it's cooperative or competitive, like the industry on your cap table. But the problems really arise when it's, you know, coming with like all these extra terms, like terms like, oh, we get a first look on any MA activity right, or like right. we have a right of first refusal on MA, or like, oh, we need additional like management rights or information rights versus all of your other investors or, oh, we need to be able to see your products before they launch. You know, like all of these things <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that are not purely capital-based can like only harm a company yeah. and make it less successful. And so- You know, my advice to any founder out there is like, you know, if there's a strategic investment from someone in the industry, it's actually like probably a benefit to both firms. Like if it's just capital-based, but if it comes with like lots of like weird, you know, clauses that like limit your own business, it's going to be a negative. And so-
0: Which if it comes from a corporate corporate VC, it usually does. So- Usually
1: does. And so if you can do it without, you know, the complexity, like you should. And so I would say like if, you know, down the road- you know, we were able to take investment from someone like, you know, BlackRock or a Vanguard or a Fidelity and it didn't come with, you know, restrictive, you know, behaviors, then it's beneficial to both firms.
0: Yeah. All right. Going going back to what you're building for a second, just kind of I've I have one more question that came up on the interest rate stuff. Um the yield, the yield curve, right? So, like, the yield curve in in economics is like central to the transmission of monetary policy, and we we don't really have a yield curve in in, in DeFi. Um, I'm assuming what happens is like you push into like treasuries and then munis and then like investment grade stuff and then maybe high yield stuff, and this this combined with interest rate swaps creates this yield curve. Is that the is that the vision here? And like, maybe tell me about your vision and how it relates to to kind of building this DeFi native yield curve.
1: Yeah. So. You know, my vision really starts with just like doing what I think is like truly the biggest opportunity, which is short term government debt. Because short term yeah. government debt, there's so much demand for it. And yeah. fundamentally, it's a incredibly healthy product, right? The investors in a short term government fund are not gonna lose money like unless there's like some like one in, you know, you know, black swan, black swan you, situation.
0: Ask ask the Bitcoin maxes. They might disagree with you, Robert.
1: And okay, that's true. You know, to the Bitcoin <laughs> maxis out there, we can debate this on Twitter. Um, but it's an incredibly healthy product. And in general, you're like not gonna lose out really against inflation and it's like long term, like a great product. Um, you know, and it's the perfect product to sit at the base of, you know, the product cycle and the yield curve. Um, as you talk about all these other things, it's just, you know, investment decisions on what you want instead of the risk free rate. Like you know, and there is risk in all of them. And, you know, there's a market for all of them. In fact, there's a huge market for every single one of them, massive. Um, But they're not as simple. It's very simple to think about, you know, short-term government debt, because short-term government debt is just one of the healthiest possible products. And, you know, it never hurts to put people into it. Hmm.
0: What about the regulatory side of all this? Um, I think I read that you guys are going to have to whitelist anyone who holds it. So what I'm like that's that's almost like a a moral trade-off maybe potentially like how did you think about this
1: Yeah it's a really fascinating you know set of trade-offs um there's I'm sure ways to make products like you know stablecoins like USDC and Tether where like they're not white listed or permissioned in any way um you know anyone can hold Tether and there's you know no checks there's no you know kyc aml OFAC. there's none of this stuff um you know there's ways to make those products and i think there's a lot of people that are like are going to benefit by making those products you know i kind of see a world in which like you know 10 years from now like what does like DeFi look like it's an amalgamation of assets that are permissionless and permissioned Mm. and that they coexist in the same protocols and the same markets and the same, you know, entities. I mean, you could have a protocol where like Aave or Compound where like, you know, you have assets that a billion people can access and eight billion people can access. And it's just like they're under the same roof, but you have ways of like sectioning off certain assets. You know, the reality is we're taking a path which, you know, by filing a prospectus and creating, you know, a product, it means it's going to be available to US investors and investors with US addresses which is awesome but it you know it also means that you have to verify in some fashion that someone is a US investor yeah. and you know this is necessary for so many different reasons um you know it's for AML it's for tax it's for compliance it's for just like market integrity like you do have to know who the shareholders of a registered mutual fund are and that's yeah. not a bad thing right there's a huge number of people that can hold that asset. There's a huge number of people that can hold that asset. It's possible over time. There's products that are only for offshore investors, and then you have, you know, a product that's for U.S. investors, and you have a product that's for non-U.S. investors, and they both exist. Um, these are just the choices that get made, and you know, from where I sit, I think it's actually really exciting to go down the path of building a product that U.S. investors can purchase that you know, has been registered in the US. It's not easy, but I definitely think it's something that, you know, opens it up to a really cool market. And, you know, we're going to be able to have a system where, you know, yes, people will have to onboard in order to hold it, but there's going to be a lot of reasons to onboard in that you're going to be able to have something that at the end of the day will eventually be, you know, a really healthy investment that you can hold on chain that is useful and, you know, you're incentivized to have it over, you know, let's say a stablecoin that just gives you 0% and burns a hole in your wallet until you right. <laughs> say like, hey, how do I exit this thing?
0: I think I think one of the last things I'm curious about here, Robert, is, um, is on the stablecoin front. Uh, I'm curious how you, I think I saw somewhere that you were either saying that this will compete with stablecoins or maybe I saw someone else posting about that, but how do you think about stablecoin competition? And, and maybe the better question is like, five years from now, uh superstate versus USDC, like competitors, enemies, frenemies. Like what does that look like?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about because I think that, you know, between products over time, stable coins and investments are gonna run into each other for users, for capital, for use cases in general. And I think the reason why stable coins are so dominant right now is because there's very few alternatives on chain. Stablecoins are a really positive product. I mean, they are the first product besides crypto native assets like Bitcoin and Ether that have like absolute product market fit. It's why we've seen stablecoins go from $0 to $130 billion in a short amount of time. Stablecoins are crazy useful because they settle instantly. They're super portable. They're programmable, and you're able to self-custody them. And so like as an asset, that asset is just better than cash in so many ways. And so like there's huge amounts of product market fit there. But the environment behind stable coins is getting worse and worse. So when rates were zero, stable coins were the greatest thing imaginable. When rates are 5%, stable coins are not a healthy product. They burn a hole in the wallet of anyone holding them. They burn a hole in any Corporate treasury. They burn a hole on any balance sheet that they're held. Because right now the sponsors of stable coins are, you know, earning 5% plus, keeping 5% plus, and giving the holders of the stablecoin zero. And this was fine when rates were half a percent. Who cares? But when rates are 5%, the sponsors are getting incredibly wealthy at the expense of the holders. And that's going to change. And the reason why that's like tolerable right now is because there's very few alternatives. It's very hard to convert those stable coins back into dollars and then go out and do something with them. That's why stable coin balances have stayed shockingly high, even as rates have gone up. But when there's alternatives that are easily accessible to crypto native investors, then I think there's going to be a war between traditional investments and stable coins. Mm-hmm. And- Right now, that war is incredibly lopsided. There's almost no traditional investments available to crypto-native investors. It's slim pickets. But when they're readily available, I think that's going to be one of the primary battlegrounds is looking for like, where does capital choose between a stable coin and an investment product that hmm. you know they can use on chain, right? And when they both exist, I think there's going to be a competition between the two. The other competition that's going to exist, you know, for better or for worse between stablecoins and investment products is that you know stablecoins still are on a you know no KYC AML bearer model right anyone can hold them whereas investment products are going to have a narrower yeah. yeah ownership base and so i wouldn't be surprised if in like 10 years there's 400 billion dollars of stablecoins and like 200 billion dollars of on-chain investment products like that wouldn't surprise me either if like hmm. they both continue to grow and it's just yeah. like Hey, if you're not within this, you know, you know, known perimeter, the returns suck. And if you're within this known perimeter, the returns are what they are supposed to be. That wouldn't surprise me either.
0: Yeah. And will you be able so there's gonna be a you know a token? Like what what what's the token like, you know, SSTF or what what's what's it gonna be called?
1: Oh, I don't know yet. You don't um, know.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> well let's all make it up. So all right, so the super state token, will you be able to put that, will you be able to trade it in things like Uniswap, not, not at lunch.
1: No, no, no. Not no.
0: at lunch. But eventually, so, you want to basically create these like white labeled pools. I'm assuming inside of the compounds in the world.
1: Well, it's a really hard problem because you know, for a fund, a fund has to actually know who all the shareholders are, and when assets go into a pool like Uniswap, you start to lose context on who the actual owners are. Right? If there's ten LPs in a Uniswap pool, right? It's hard for this, the fund itself to even know how many shares each person has, right? Especially like, look, at you just want B3. People have different, you know, liquidity ranges. Like when the price has moved $1, yeah. like yeah. how much do each of the underlying LPs even have anymore? Like it's an incredibly hard problem. And the reason it's necessary to like understand this, you know, besides like, the first piece of like, oh, okay. Like, can we make sure that North Korea isn't one of the holders of it. That that part's honestly quite easy to like make sure North Korea is not a holder. The harder part is just saying like, hey, we have to issue like ten ninety nines, and yeah. like essentially PL Like, you really have to know when each shareholder has acquired and disposed of an asset, um, and if you can't do that, then like. It's just mechanically like impossible to operate, and so I think what's going to happen is over time, the development cycle is actually going to go in like a different circle. So you're going to get investment products, and then DeFi platforms are going to have to reinvent themselves mm. to accommodate them. Um, it might require small changes to protocols. It might require like medium changes to protocols, but like I actually think the opposite happens. It's not like, hey, you know. We're doing this asset, it's gonna go in uniswap and we're gonna figure out how to make it work. It's gonna be here's how we have a compliant product that's able to, you know, handle taxes correctly and it's able to handle KYC AML OFAC correctly and all of these things. And then like, what does a protocol need to do to actually make those assets able to be used in the protocol? Because right now, frankly, like
0: oh interesting. Yeah, I yeah. don't
1: think Uniswap yeah. <laughs> V three actually would work with, you know, a fund.
0: I have a product idea on, on this front. T- tell me if it. Uh, tell me why this is a, a bad idea. One. Um. What, what if you could create like a basically a KYC AML protocol, and once you go through the once you go through KYC AML, you just get a um. What are the non tradable soul token or whatever you want to call it, a non tradable NFT that just sits in your wallet, and then when I go on Uniswap, it also sees that I have this soul bound token that's like the KYC token. And only for people who have that, they can trade the super state funds. Good idea, bad idea?
1: Yeah. So it's actually really interesting the idea of having like a global sort of like KYC system that like many different issuers or protocols could hook into. Um, the approach that we're taking is that, you know, the fund admin and transfer agent and investment advisor, which is like us and service providers, that's who you're actually providing the information to really providing it to the fund admin at the end of the day which is going to be a very traditional wall street mm. entity um you know they're the only ones who are going to have the information of the shareholders it's not going to like live on a blockchain being like 0x123f2 is you know yano <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like that's not going to like live on the blockchain um you know Jason's information isn't going to be on chain it's going to be with the fund admin and the fund admin is like, okay, well, like one, two, three, F, you know, fours, you know, it's Jason, you know, whatever. Um, The the other sort of difficult piece with that product idea is, you know, you don't want to expose the information, but each of the people that are like using the whitelist kind of have to know who it is. They can't just be like, oh, Superstate signed off on their KYC, therefore like, you know, people can like use our platform. It's like, cause if like a regulator goes to them and says, okay, well, who's user one, two, three, FD. They'll be like, I don't know, like go as super state, but it's not like our product, right? It's not like our, you know, thing that you're using. So it's it just like creates this like information imbalance that like makes it hard to have like one global whitelist cause it's like, where's the information even live? Um, and so I think the best approach in the short term is just like, Hey, you can onboard with this fund admin. The fund admin knows you and can say one, two, three. You know, FD is you know mm-hmm. approved to be able to hold this asset. But no one knows on chain who one, two, three FD is besides the fund admin. The information is not exposed. You can hold the asset. You can transfer it to another shareholder. You know, high five. Everything just works you know, getting into systems where many different projects or products or systems share the same whitelisting system just starts to get like really complex. And I think someone's going to do it. Like honestly, in like 10 years, there's so many smart people out there. In 10 years, someone's going to figure out how to have a zero knowledge proof based system (laughs) where you can prove that you're not North Korea and the whole thing just works and it's interoperable. And every DeFi protocol can have it for investment assets and like you know, crypto native assets like without a whitelist just continue to work like that and like the whole thing just goes together and it's perfect and users love it but that's like
0: <laughs> just <laughs> voila just kiss that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a mile away <laughs> and so
1: like if you see those projects like let me know i'd love to invest I got you
0: i got you um business model here is just fee fee model right like you it's know, fees 25 yeah it's so bips simple on, okay
1: yeah it's gonna be 33 bips on the fund that we filed a preliminary prospectus for um, it'd be 30, great if, like, over time, that comes down to be more competitive with Vanguard yeah. and things like that. But it seems like a pretty competitive fee to start. It's,
0: it's actually a beautifully simple business. It's, I uh, I wish Blockworks had just one rev, like one simple pricing. Like that's 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 a beautiful business. But um, but it's also a tough business because it's a very small amount of money, right? Like, if you get a billion dollars, I think this mental math is right. A billion dollars on thirty-three bips. That's three million three hundred thousand. That's right. So, I guess you're just betting that like you will have two hundred million two hundred billion right not
1: that's the goal. The goal yeah. is over time to be competitive with Blackrock right you and two hundred
0: like, billion on thirty three bips what is what is that That's six hundred and sixty million all right that that's a nice billion and uh, per nice, year
1: nice, is like cash yeah. flow yeah that's yeah that's a nice that's business. a great business yeah
0: <laughs> fair enough um awesome man any anything we missed on superstate?
1: I think we've covered pretty much everything cool you excited to
0: be back in the uh the early stage like you day know, one days
1: <laughs> i'm like a zero to one guy and i'm also like a one to ten guy i'm not like a ten to a hundred guy or like a hundred <laughs> to a thousand like i actually really like the early stages um yeah. a lot because it's like bringing something to life that hasn't existed before for me is like really fun and like beyond that i love growing something i love like taking it from like, hey, there's usage to like, hey, there's a lot of usage. But I think there's people who are better at like, hey, there's a lot of usage. How do we get it to crazy usage than me? And so I love the early stage. It's what I love as an investor. It's what I love as a founder. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, what do you have to do to bring something new to the world that should exist? That like yeah, yeah. users want, that regulators want, that like, you know, composable, you know, businesses and protocols want. It's like, how do you just like usher it into being like that's so fun and like that's what i'm really happy to be doing again
0: yeah i'm excited for you man what what did you find to be the toughest thing about running a company that had gone into what i'd call like that third stage like the i don't know how many employees you guys had but like it was definitely past the you know 10 employees like 30 or 50 i don't know how big it was but yeah
1: well it's it's interesting because like my focus for last like couple years at compound was on a product called compound treasury which you can start to see the parallels between well it's funny because
0: when i saw this i was like oh he's been trying to do this but it didn't it was like square peg round hole inside a compound so yeah square peg round
1: hole so like my focus was on compound treasury which was a product for institutions that the idea was like, you know, you could have a DeFi protocol, and then you would have a layer on top of a DeFi protocol, right? right. And the institutions could interact with this layer on top of a DeFi protocol that was like, you know, had a regulatory framework, and like they could get the benefits of DeFi without using it themselves. And it was a really cool idea. Like to be honest, so, like I actually thought it would work, and like we actually got like thirty-three really cool institutional users and customers um, for the product, and it was starting to scale and growth was great. And then CFI blew up. I mean, you know, 3 AC, Genesis, Celsius, FTX, like all these BlockFi, BlockFi yeah. um, a bunch of other ones. It was like everybody who was in the business of like, give us your money, like trust us, like we'll make it work correctly and safely. Like prove that like that model like was like not gonna work. Um And it was really frustrating because we spent like two years or so building up like a really cool product. And like it was the first product um, in crypto with a credit rating. Like we like literally were like trying to model and, and, and like allow others to even like see the risks and like see how it worked and be incredibly like transparent about building a product that like people could get comfortable with. Like what are you doing and how does it work? And then when everybody blew up, just the idea of like, Give us your money and like we will, like give you more back. Even if it was like based on a DeFi protocol under the hood, <laughs> like using a smart contract, they can't steal your money. Like the whole concept of like give us your money, like seemed ridiculous. Yeah, and so yeah. like if you're gonna do it, you need like a Any really- sort of
0: give us your money. Whether you're raising for a fund, a company, a product, not a great right. time. Yeah. Not a great time
1: for like give us your money. Um, yeah. And so like that's really like the kernel of the idea that's evolved into superstate nice. which is hey if you're going to say give us your money you need a really well trod path and like a really clean structure for that and like in my mind the cleanest structure possible is you have a registered investment product with auditors and service providers and it's like give your money to a mutual fund does that sound scary you know give your money to a mutual fund with cool on-chain components that like evolve is like really actually quite, you know, sound. Um, it's not like give it to a business to like do what they want with. And so I think it's the path that institutions unfortunately are gonna have to go down. I think it's like the only thing like tolerable to acquire the next billions of dollars of assets in the crypto ecosystem is, hey, here's an incredibly straightforward you know, product that you can understand that's regulated, that there's a lot of professional service providers built around, and that, you know, you know that the assets are being invested in something straight, simple, and transparent. And but it's also composable over time with the crypto ecosystem and why you're here in the first place. And so yeah, it's an evolution. You know, it was really sad for combat treasury not to work. Um, you know, but it, it's really exciting for
0: that is there's no tougher thing i think than shutting down something shutting down something whether it's a company or product or anything that you've been working super hard on for the last couple of years
1: i know it was it was was difficult but i think like this new direction is really exciting compound labs has you know new management um i want to commend
0: you by the way i i actually i I don't know jason i've been dming with jason a little bit um just on twitter i think he's going to come on the podcast we'll 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 have him on soon at some point but um I commend you for putting a product designer in charge of compound because if you of all of the things the skills basically that are undervalued in crypto today there's sale, you know, people value engineers people value bd people people value marketers product design I think is the most undervalued skill set in all of crypto today and it's something that we need a lot more Product designers and a lot better product designers so I uh, I, th- I thought it was awesome that you put a product designer in charge
1: I completely agree um yeah. you know Jason's you know not just a product designer but just like a great product thinker yeah. and you know I think user experience has so far to go in crypto generally that the more people you can empower who are just like you know really focused on the user the better and you know for the last couple of years he was you know really, you know leading pretty much all of the product at compound and so you know having him there i think like they're gonna do really cool things awesome
0: robert anything else man i think that's it cool always a pleasure my friend uh hope you enjoy the rest of your day and uh, best of luck to you in uh, Superstate.
1: yeah thank you thanks for having me on the show